Hey, it's Mike. Welcome to Intergalactic, the podcast about the greatest sci-fi movies and TV of all time. Today we're taking a little detour, continuing our series called Sci-Fi B-Sides. This is where we dive into the fun sci-fi junk from uh, the pop culture trash bin of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. The B-level stuff that, for the most part, you can watch for free on Tubi. God bless Tubi. Joining me today from the Text Trek podcast, it's my friend Stephen Fothery. What's up, Stephen? Howdy, howdy. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. So Stephen is here to help me dive into the, what I'm calling the two-part premiere of a wonderful B-level show, if there ever was a B-level show, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. The long night has come. The system's commonwealth, the greatest civilization in history, has fallen. But now, one ship, one crew have vowed to drive back the night and rekindle the light of civilization. On the starship Andromeda, hope lives again. Andromeda premiered in U.S. syndication October 2nd, 2000. It looks like a 90s show, but it premiered in 2000. Andromeda stars Kevin Sorbo as the high guard captain Dylan Hunt, uh, a spaceman spaceman with an iron will, an iron heart, and ironed hair. I love Dylan Hunt, even though he's played by Kevin Sorbo, but we'll get into that. The show also stars Lisa Ryder, Keith Hamilton Cobb, Laura Bertram, Gordon Michael Wolvitt, Lexa Duig, and Brent State. Andromeda was developed by somebody we're familiar with, Stephen, Robert Hewitt Wolf. Yes. Formerly a great writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I can't recall what he wrote, but you can tell me what he did. We'll get into it. Um, we watched the show's two-part premiere. The episodes were titled Under the Night and An Affirming Flame. Gotta love the writing on this one. Stephen, what do you think about this uh, this goofy this goofy show? You know, it it is very much a uh, it is a blast from the past. It was uh, it it is a great representation of the mad rush in direct syndication television of the late twentieth, early twenty first century of of trying to crank out sci fi shows. Or in this case, there there were a lot of like next generation clones. You know, kind of like. Mm. Babylon 5 probably like started the trend. But then there there's a, a lot of of sci-fi on television in the 90s and and early aughts, I guess. Yeah. Because of Star Trek and the X-Files and stuff like that. It's kind of like sci-fi still wasn't like real mainstream. You wouldn't have had things like Game of Thrones or like the MCU be like as big as they that would have still been that was kind of like nerdy stuff. But on television, you know, that that kind of there is like a sector of acceptable nerddom, like you know, people who watch Star Trek and X-Files. Yeah, this was like relegated to at this time, sci-fi was relegated. If if it was on network, it's relegated to Friday nights, right? Yeah. Or if it wasn't off network, it was in syndication, run at random times at different places. I remember seeing previews for this um, on like a couple different channels growing up in South Texas. And maybe I caught parts of an episode here and there, sometimes at 4 p.m., like on a random Saturday, sometimes at midnight on Thursday. Like you, you never knew when the when these shows were going to show up. Uh, and that was kind of the charm of them, too. Can I just say that I kind of love this stupid show? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, it's it's like, yeah, it's like not great television, but it, it's no. it's very watchable. You know, it's like that that certain flavor of, of entertainment that it's not something you seek out. You don't 
watch something like this on purpose. But, you know, if, if you flip <laughs> past it, you know, if you flip pa- past it randomly on a Friday yeah. night, you know, it's like, oh, this this might capture your attention. Yeah, this is very much like COVID. You don't get it on purpose, but when it happens, it happens and you're stuck And you make at home. the best of it. Yeah. You make the best of it. You're stuck at home with a blanket uh, in front of the couch watching TV. This is what's on. I mean, it's 90% thick cheese and it's definitely B-level, but I really enjoyed these two episodes. Partly with some ironic distance for sure, but I also just genuinely like had fun with it on its own dumb terms i haven't seen the full series yet i i didn't really watch it when it aired 23 24 years ago but after watching these two episodes i was kind of like okay that was cool next like <laughs> what happens next i have questions i have questions for you if you watch yeah give me questions come on because i stopped after episode two mm-hmm. do they maintain the string continuity serialization every episode leads into the next or does it become a more episodic show kind of traditional star trek television like we used to have it's a little more episodic than tng more serialized than tng i'm sorry yeah it's more serialized than tng but not not to the level of ds9 or b5 got it like the the crew still tries to to get comfy with being uh under the command of dylan hunt and all that do they ever call him Captain? Um, yeah, I think by the fourth episode, they're calling some of them are calling him him Captain. I did read that they aired some of these episodes out of order, so some of it, like you know, sometimes the crew is on a certain level with the captain, sometimes they're not. So, you know, the the order's kind of all the, all over the place. And I watched this on Tubi. You can also watch it on Freevee. Basically, all the all the free apps. We watched it in Tubi in the Trek Discord server. Oh. Sometimes I, I watch stuff in there with uh, whoever whoever shows up. So if if anyone uh, finds a link to my social media, you can you can come into the Trek Discord server. You might find things like Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda streaming to watch with uh with me and whoever else is is up and about. Very cool. Um let's talk about well, I mean I still want to give my perspective of this before we we get deep into it. Um, Cheesy ass show, obviously, B-level schlock, but it, I felt like it has not really a soul, but it feels like there is someone with a soul trying to guide this thing against the wind of dumb, tropey sci-fi TV conventions and a very low budget and very limited acting. That person, of course, is Robert Hewitt Wolf, who was brought on to to develop the show, to steer the ship uh, after proving his metal on DS9. So yeah, it, it's a mixed bag. It's definitely not high quality in any sense, but it's a hell lot of fun. Sorbo's unflappable strongman posturing is just fun to watch, and he's kind of magnetic in a terrible way. I know he's a trash person. He is like one of these Z-list quote-unquote celebs that rides the wave of like pro-January 6th Twitter angst. You know, he's like Z-level, stay yes. away from him. But like, he's just perfect for this. It's just goofy and perfect. Now, and I know we have the Nietzscheans who 
I didn't take philosophy in college, but well, that's that's how he found out about that book, God's Not Dead, apparently, right? Like, like, <laughs> like someone, so he, he he probably like was on set, you know, reading the script. He's like, "What the hell's a Nietzsche?" And you know, they're like, "Oh, Frederick Nietzsche," you know, like God's not dead. You're like, what? God's not what? <laughs> so, so you know, I'm I'm sure that was like the genesis of that. Yes, that propelled him to star in God's Not Dead too. Uh, God lives. I think that's what that one's called. So yeah, these Nietzscheans like. I didn't feel any existential dread coming off these people. They're just like ubermensches. Very strange. Okay, the back the background. I want to talk a little bit about the Gene Roddenberry of it all. I'm curious about the the background, like the development of this. Okay, it's very brief. This is apparently based on notes or outlines for a series that Roddenberry had lying around. And after his passing, Majel Barrett, his widow, sold the concept with the Roddenberry name attached got Wolf to develop it, and there you go. So in terms of the Roddenberry of it all, there's actually not much there. It's known that, it's pretty widely known, I think, that Roddenberry had just tons, like hundreds of TV show ideas and premises. He spent most of the 70s trying to get another show, like like Star Trek. He wanted to do something else that would be as big as Star Trek. Yeah. I remember when this show came out, um, and I saw the ads... You know, I, I I remember thinking it was potentially a Star Trek spinoff because it's called Andromeda. It's got Roddenberry's name. So I had this idea that they want to evoke take, that. They they want they you definitely to, do. Yeah. yeah. I it didn't look like Star Trek, but I remember thinking, OK, it's called Andromeda. So maybe it takes place in the Andromeda galaxy concurrent with Trek in the same fictional, you know, multiverse. But that's that's just not the case. It's kind of fun if you watch it with that headcanon. Like over here, <laughs> we have a like cheesy, you know, a bronze colored sci-fi show going on. And over in the Milky Way, you know, there's Star Trek. I didn't I didn't think about taking that approach, but they also did the Gene Roddenberry show uh, Earth Final Conflict. I, I think that mm. was a few years before this one. So that I guess I guess Majel sold that one off first. But I think Rod Roddenberry actually had some involvement in that show. It, it might it might have come second. I might have the the timeline mixed. Have you up. seen that one? Um, I saw a couple of episodes when it was on T, and, and even Andromeda. I did flip past this. I, I saw some episode where Sorbo is on the outside of a spaceship in, in a spacesuit or something. But I, it was never something that I watched regularly. Uh, when it was, I would have been in high school. I was a teenager when this came on, and um, mm. I was watching Star Trek. Like this it was around the same time as Voyager, and then Star Trek Enterprise, and I was watching those, but I did not keep up with. Andromeda. I, I I never really gave Andromeda a shot until uh, a couple days ago, but I I You're would welcome. I would be curious to uh to see more if if I was watching it with like someone else who who was uh also like of the same mindset. I, you know I don't want to watch it with like someone who's like I'm like the world's hugest Andromeda fan because I don't want to like make fun of it to them. But yeah, I wouldn't want to watch this with like someone else who's just gonna like roll their eyes at all the the dated effects you know the cg does not hold up it would have looked fine in 2000 though i I would not have batted an eye at any any of this or even like the alien designs they're not they're not great like one of the reasons why i probably didn't watch this type of stuff when it was on is because it didn't look as good as what would have been you know on star trek this would have been kind of like the cheaper this was the kmart uh Mm. alter i guess today we would we would say the wish.com variant of, of star trek the timu star trek yeah yeah, for sure. Let's talk. I, w- I want to go into the effects and the and the look and the whole vibe of the show with you. But DS Nine is your favorite Trek, like mine, right? Yes. And I know you 
you've done a, a rewatch of DS9 more recently than I have. So you'll probably, hopefully, I think you'll remember the episodes Robert Hewitt Wolf was known for. Do you feel or see the Robert Hewitt Wolf in this show at all? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, he was really ingrained and in, I think just like the the overall voice of Deep Space Nine as a whole, he'd be kind of like isolated as a, as a singular influence because a lot of his writing, he was showrunner Ira Stephen Bear's writing partner for a while. Mm. He was kind of like Ira's right-hand man. I think he started as his assistant, actually. Uh, but they wrote a lot of scripts together. Whenever Ira was scripting an episode, you normally uh, he, he would work with Robert Hewitt Wolf. And I believe their process was they would just they would just both do passes until like they both liked it. Um, I might be blurring that with uh, Renee Echeverria, who yeah. became Ira's writing partner after Robert Hewitt Wolf left in season five. But I know he was like really involved with the uh, the two parter uh, home front and paradise lost on um, Earth when Cisco had to come back to San Francisco and deal with the security yeah. concerns and the admiral trying to enforce martial law. So he he kind of liked those, you know, kind of political stories, those military stories, you know, uh, security versus freedom type stuff. He came back in season seven after he had left the show for a bit. I guess like after he was already working on this show, but he came back in season seven and did that episode with Esri Dax where she's trying to find the the killer on the station. I don't know if you remember. Oh, that. yeah. The, the cool phaser yeah. rifle that could shoot through yeah. walls. So yeah, he wrote that episode. That's a memorable one. I, I, I feel that there is some hints at interesting or compelling characterization here the the first episode's a little weird because we don't set up the status quo of the show in the first episode you have to wait till the second episode mm -hmm. and when these episodes aired it wasn't billed as like a two-hour premiere or a two-part premiere it was just like here's a premiere episode tune in next week so you don't really get the status quo of the show till the middle or the end of episode two when you get the ragtag um salvage crew on board so when I started watching this, you know, the first half of the show of the of the premiere episode is kind of mirroring what we have with the Federation, right? We have Sorbo right. as a captain of the flagship Andromeda. Uh, that is the the flagship of the Commonwealth, not the Federation. You can tell it's not the Federation because they wear uh, khakis, I guess. <laughs> They wear khakis and their ships uh, have golden earth tones on the they inside. They have robots. There's robots walking around who have boobs. Like some like engineer oh, yeah. was like, I'm going to design breasts on oh. my robots for some reason. Anything vaguely feminine on this show has boobs and boob windows for sure. The ship has boobs. Andromeda has yes. has tits. Like yes. <laughs> I like the idea of like like the ship being sentient and having like a personified AI, but it's also like in the image of a hot girl with a boob window. Like this is the kind of show we're dealing with. Well, that's a very Star Trek thing. You know, like the the captain's main lady is his ship. You know, like Captain Kirk mm -hmm. could never settle down with a single woman because he, the real love of his life was his ship, the Enterprise. So it's kind of like the same thing. And, and here it even has like a visual representation of like, oh, look, the ship can turn into like a hot woman. So if you read the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture written by Gene Roddenberry, talking about Gene Roddenberry's work. But, you know, the infamous scene of Kirk and Scott 
Scotty taking 47 hours to tour the Enterprise and <laughs> the observation pod, you know. Yeah. Like, I know a lot of people love the ship porn of that, and I don't blame anyone, you know, who who doesn't have a good time hearing Jerry Goldsmith's wonderful music. But if you read the novelization of that, like, Kirk is, like, mentally, like, fucking the Enterprise as 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 him and Scotty are, like, watching it. It's, it's, it's very, very pornographic, the way that, that Roddenberry wrote, like, Admiral Kirk's, like, observation of the ship, of, of like, there she was and like all of her beauty as as he and Scott floated above her and he knew he could he could conquer her and make her his and be her captain and it's it uh, but that was Gene Roddenberry that was Kirk and this is very much that like influence brought to life with their Andromeda character I would kind of love but also kind of be grossed out of the at the idea of reading Roddenberry's notes for this there's probably like a really gross, deep description of the way Andromeda looks in his notes. Maybe he was trying to write another part for Majel. Maybe, I mean, like she already had mm. experience, you know, voicing the ship's computer. So maybe, maybe that was the idea at some point. Yeah. She was going to be the the hologram. It's like she she found the notes. She's like, what is this porn that you're writing? No, baby, I wrote that for you. <laughs> <laughs> then he then he had to develop this entire show around yeah. it, and then after he died, she like just sold it to, to some yeah. TV producer, and there you go. It's like, no, I'm not jerking it to this. I wrote this for you, baby. You're the star. You and Dylan Hunt. Dylan Hunt. That just sounds like a name that like a 12 year old boy playing in his treehouse would make up. Like, Wasn't that like the Brandon Routh movie? That was like it was like a low budget. Hmm. job in like another country based on like some comic book but it was like dylan hunt vampire hunter or something oh that sounds great i'm gonna add that to the list of yeah like look this, maybe maybe i imagined that but there's yeah. some brandon ralph movie called something like maybe it's like dylan dog i'm i'm confusing the titles but you know brandon ralph for a while there i was like this poor guy played superman now you know just unloved for a decade he got a but couple then- years of work on the cw yeah, then I was going to say the CW, you know, gave him some work and he was really fun on that show. But that guy, man, he must have been like, I'm going to be a star. You know, I'm going to be in the movies. Poor guy. Well, he deserved he better. He actually like some agent hired him thinking like, you look like you could play Superman someday. And then like that, that agent dropped him. <laughs> I guess like when uh-huh. he couldn't get a job as Superman. But I bet Kevin Sorbo really wanted to be Superman. Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed when I saw Kevin Sorbo. Like th- before, we knew as he was as big of a jerk as he is. And, mm. I mean, like just to emphasize, like yeah, Kevin Sorbo, like really, I know like a lot of people, like yeah, William Shatner, like so, like William Shatner doesn't go around like apologizing for Nazis. Like Sorbo is like yeah, very, very, very bad. But as, as I, I've enjoyed a good bit of his work, I wouldn't say it's like great acting, sure. but it's good. It's, he's got like that lead man energy, and you know, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. certain skill set that. Like guys like Shatner have, Sorbo has it. I'll, I'll admit that. But when I saw him at a convention, I was so disappointed. Like he he lost like his Hercules muscles and he had like these like skinny stick arms. I was like, Kevin Sorbo, oh. yeah, you disappoint me. But then I learned all this other stuff about him. Like, oh, no, I have like legitimate reasons to to be disappointed in him. But the reality of Kevin Sorbo and who he is now kind of, I find it hard to watch this show a little bit because it kind of colors what I'm watching. I'm like, okay, he... I get the noble idea that he is stuck in this post-apocalyptic world or universe where he once came from this world of great peace and order, right? And now he wants to reestablish the peace and order and that, you know, 
those are pretty good intentions, but like seeing it through the Kevin Sorbo of 2024 lens, I'm like, oh, he wants to reestablish the third right, doesn't he? Doesn't he? It's evil. Make the Commonwealth great again. Exactly. Yeah. I I kind of like the idea, though, at the heart of the show that doesn't really come around till the end of the second episode where he is essentially pitching to this salvage crew of like, hey, you guys are living job by job out here. It's a doggy dog. It's awful, but you can find something more meaningful and constructive with me on this ship. Um, it's it's about thinking bigger mm. and doing something with meaning with your life, right? For the culture at large. Like, I, I like that idea. And it's a pretty solid foundation for for a fun, goofy sci-fi show. Like, this one um, Federation type captain is lost in space for 300 years, wakes up next to a black hole, a ragtag crew of dispersed colorful aliens uh, try to steal his ship, end up liking the guy, and then they band together to make the universe a, a friendlier place. And then they hit a bunch of speed bumps along the way. That's a pretty good idea for a show. Yeah, it's a good premise. I mean, you you have yeah. a natural arc there. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. there's a very obvious arc to to tell with your story. And, and I like how they do show how all these people they are kind of selfish shitheads. They they're mm-hmm. all talking about like what they're going to do with like their share of the money they're going to make. And uh, by the end of it, you know, it, it, it is kind of like, hey, what if you you know did something that that gave to the universe instead of just trying to look at the universe as something that you know can can give you something? What if you tried to give back? And it was kind of a new concept to all of them. So you get the idea of this kind of dystopian society that that Captain Hunt finds himself in. Yeah, it's like, hey, we're not in a Star Trek show. What if we made this a Star Trek show, guys? <laughs> yeah. It's very similar to what they're they're doing and or I guess what they did a couple of years ago in Star Trek Discovery where they just mm. sent that ship into the into the far future into an almost kind of post federation world not quite yeah. but uh, but if if uh you want like another parallel to uh, to DS9 where like some of Wolfie's influence might be showing through in here. You know the I guess they're called the Nightsiders but these uh these very hideous dog people Oh, the the hideous dog the, people, the red the nose, really people, yeah. unsettling, like wet Rudolph nose. Oh, that was too much to handle. Yeah, that's what I put in my notes was Rudolph. Of yeah, uh, I, I was actually uh, a lady friend came by when I was watching this, and she was like, "Why does that guy's face have a dog penis in the middle of it?" I was, I was a, I can't get like that image out of my head it, when I look at it. This does guy, but. look like pet genitalia. At the edge of his face, doesn't it? That's what's so unsettling about it. Yeah. But on paper, he's kind of a Ferengi. You know, he's just all about business <laughs> and making profit and doesn't care right, about people. Yeah. So I am simultaneously in love with and grossed out by the costumes and uh, makeup and creature effects in this. Like the bug at the beginning, who's, oh God, what is the bug's name? R.I.G. Bug a- Lady. She has an insane name, like Visions of Force Light or something. And there's this whole like weird backstory that could go with this character, but she's like immediately killed. I think we were supposed to think, oh, this is going to be one of our, this is going to be like, you know, one of our fan favorite characters. This is, yeah. this is like their yeah. wharf. This is, you know, this is whatever. It was a fake this is their Neelix. And then it was like, oh no, the bug lady died. 
Yeah. But I loved the visual of that weird looking bug lady. That didn't seem like something out of the 2000s or the 90s. It felt like something out of, you know, a, a 80s revival of Lost in Space or something. It was just so goofy. But but it gets that's like the peak of the um the alien designs in this show because it only gets worse from there. You get the gross dog people with the uh the dog penises for nose for noses. And then you get the Magog. Oh, that's mustard face. But busted face is what I put in my notes for, for yeah. him. But yeah, the the Reverend. Yes. It's like somebody got a, a a werewolf and just shoved his face into the ground like ten times and then stuck him in the microwave. Yeah, like, like his nose is like awful. split open. Oh yeah. And it's weird because that character is probably the one with the most depth and has like the most soul and has some of the best dialogue and is really self-aware um, throughout the whole thing. I'm like, I kind of like this character. I want to learn more about him, but I don't want to look at him. Yeah, that was, so that was my impression because it kind of took me a while, like getting used to looking at this guy on screen before I was like, you know what? Like, he's kind of cool, though. He's the only one of these jerks I'd want to hang out with. But th- <laughs> the idea of like the species that is so... So heinous that they're like they're 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 birthed from rape, which is yeah. you know intense and over the top, and probably something we'd we'd think about a bit more before uh, putting in a show today. But uh, you know they they want it to be like as extreme as possible. But then like if you if you come from that, but like if you want to be like a decent person who does good and contributes to society, and you have like this like guilt the shame that you're born into it's uh man that's like a that's a hell of a life you know it's it's a hell of an experience to go through i guess yeah and the fact that a a show this goofy was willing to like it seems like it's willing to engage with all of those themes that are inherent in a character like that that can get pretty dark and deep i'm like okay i want to watch more of this but i don't want to look at it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that does feel a bit Deep Space Nine from you. Know, Deep mm, Space Nine yeah. was one of the Star Trek shows that they weren't they weren't afraid to explore more spiritual type stuff. Right. Um. So you know, here with this guy, he's he's you know very religious. I do think it is odd when he does say, uh, "If you pray to any deity, you might want to start now." Like it had to be like at a specific time. Like 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 there's deities that are like watching their followers that are like. Okay, if these people are like right. too big of pussies and they start praying to me, praying to me prematurely, I'm not going to step in. But if if they wait till it's like really dangerous, then I'm going to be more likely to respond to their prayers. I don't, I don't, I didn't know that like prayers had to be like at a specific time. But religion's crazy, man. There's there yeah. very uh, strict bumpers on when you can and can't pray. Apparently, um, the the later episodes, I watched like two or three more. Um, the later episodes do explore the religion that this guy professes a little bit. They're called Wayist, and it's essentially yeah. Buddhism, which is interesting. The other characters, well, we talked about Dylan Hunt. Um, we have the other characters, uh, Becca Valentine. She's the uh, the captain of the Eureka Maru, the salvage ship, played by Lisa Ryder, who I know from watching Jason X a few weeks ago. Uh, she plays like a cyborg in that. So she's been in a bunch of these like C, B level sci-fi things. I yeah. think she does a pretty fun job here. I really like, even though the the idea of the show is that the, the crew is sick of their life on this crappy ship and they immediately at the end jump aboard the Andromeda. They're like, oh, this is like a space hotel. We love it here. I kind of like the aesthetic and the vibe of the 
the mercenary ship a little better. It felt real kind of firefly-y where things are always breaking and it felt a lot more lived in and real and interesting. And it was like shaky cam going on. I kind of like that vibe a little better than the serene, like, you know, clean vibe we get on the Andromeda. That was kind of, there was like a stylistic shift towards that like grittier sci-fi around this time. Mm -hmm. Cause you also had Firefly a couple years after this and then BSG, you know, it was a lot, and yeah. even Star Trek Enterprise, it was much more analog mm -hmm. and, and, you know, switches and toggles and buttons and not so much like touchscreen type tech. So that was kind of the zeitgeist around the turn of the century, wasn't it? Yeah, it kind of feels like this show was going against the trend, right? It was like, nope, we're not going to do the gritty realistic thing. Yeah, it's like, this is, this is, this is the popular thing everyone else is going to do. And no, we're going to try to be like classic Star Trek, like this over here. And I can see why it would gain such a fan base if that stuff, if that classic Star Trek, you know, antiseptic clean look you know, where uh, a better future vibe was kind of fading at that time, but had tons of fans. I can see where people might latch onto this show because they're like, oh, no, I don't want to watch any of this, you know, new, more realistic, grounded, gritty sci-fi. I want my, you know, space utopian fantasy over here. So it makes sense that this would have it does have diehard fans. There, there are there are people. out. Oh, there no doubt. Who, yeah. There are people out there who will find this podcast and send us angry emails, I'm sure. I, I've already pissed off so many people by, just on the things that I, I complained about, the things that I, I complimented but didn't compliment enough. You know, the Babylon mm. 5 people don't like me because I, I didn't – I complimented Babylon 5 but not in, in the appropriate way. Oh, so, no. Um, they're, they don't like me anymore. I'm a Babylon 5 person and I like you. I accept. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. JMS doesn't like me. He blocked me on Twitter. What did you tell JMS? I just I asked him a question, but I don't want to I don't want to get into it. But he he uh I don't know um he might have been just okay. having a bad day that day. But okay, um so Rebecca Valentine is the the captain. Then we have Trance Gemini, yeah, Cat Lady, Cat Lady or Cat Elf Lady or Dumb Dumb Bimbo Eye Candy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in the anime world, I believe they would call her a fan service. There's probably like mm. some term for like dumb bimbo waifu type anime trope character. But yeah, yeah. she's there to like be pretty and act cutesy. And I, I don't know if she goes, if they do anything interesting with her. I think there's potential there, but I don't know. Yeah, there there is. There, there's a little hints here that, you know, like she dies and comes back to life and the Andromeda AI can't establish what species she is. So there's lots of like questions around this character that I'm sure get explored more later on. And I, I was looking at stills from future episodes and she changes color later. So she starts off as a purple cat. Yeah. She's like a purple cat lady with a tail and uh, showing off her boobs and butt. So that's the kind of show we're getting. We should warn the, those out there who might not be uh, very well versed in Andromeda that the the show has a reputation of uh it, it gets bad and does not not have a good final season it, i think around season four it, yes i did read about this hewitt wolf leaves in the middle yeah. of season two allegedly because he was interested in writing a ensemble show a deep space opera and at that point, I think Kevin Sorbo became a producer and he was like, nope, this show is about Dylan Hunt, the hero. <laughs> That's unfortunate. They kept butting heads. 
So S- Sorbo ruined the show. The, like we 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 we've yes. just said we've peppered throughout this entire conversation all these oh yeah that's like good a lot of potential that's like good premise mm-hmm. you know stuff like that and now yeah. it's like oh but Sorbo's the guy who who well Sorbo's ego is known to have ruined the show and it became less about the less about the space opera and all of the interesting colorful characters that surround Dylan Hunt and how they affect him and change him but it became more uh. about Dylan Hunt the superhero. So we get more lines like, oh my God, that guy was so big. He had the body of a Greek God. <laughs> like, oh, that's actual like dialogue. That, that might be verbatim, the dialogue. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, uh, the meta. This guy was in Hercules line. Yeah, for sure. Uh, which is spoken by uh, Harper, AKA the id of Xander Harris, uh, played by Gordon Michael Wolvitt. The chief engineer here. Yeah. Frosted tips is what I put it in my, mm-hmm. my notes. Mm-hmm. For it. He, he's very 2000. I like, I saw him and I was like, oh, I have my gene code jeans on and I'm listening to Lincoln park and I'm back mm-hmm. in the year 2000. I'm sure in his off time, he, uh, he skateboards on a lime green skateboard and, and crushes a bunch of go-gurts. Yeah. He's having a good time. Yeah. Good. And drink some Mountain Dew. Yeah. Um, I actually liked, you know, dis- despite the fact that she seems to be there for a bunch of eye candy, I liked um, the Andromeda AI character played by Lexa. Mm-hmm. I think there is potential there in growing that character and kind of, I really like the stories that we got, you know, in sci-fi around this time about questioning whether or not robots can have souls. Is AI real? It seems like we might, there's potential for that kind of character storytelling in this in this show i'm not sure how deep it could go but it could be good and it allows your captain he can have like a confidant you know he can still be like the the man displaced from time he can still be like you know like the buck rogers you know separate from from everyone he's familiar with but he can still have someone to like talk to to show the audience you know what's going on in in his head and his heart things he wouldn't talk to any of the other characters about so how'd you feel the um how'd you really feel the effects held up and like the set design and everything um I would focus more on, I guess, on like the intent, because I, I think as far as like production design, I think like the CGI would have helped. That would have been that would have been good for 2000 for direct. To synd- this was direct to syndication, right? Like that. Yeah. There's no like network giving them money. Then I mean, yeah, that, that that's good for 2000. That looked as good as like stuff that would have been on cable for the most part. Um, but the only thing that I think uh, is distractingly bad is the uh, the aliens. I think that. Uh, you know, when I watch this, it's like, man, I really appreciate, you know, Michael Westmore on them Star Trek shows. Like, you know, people talk now about like, oh, them old Star Trek shows from the 80s and 90s and how good they look or bad they look. But compare it to other stuff at the time. Like that was that was the premium sci-fi on television, you know. So it's like, yeah, these uh, these creatures, it's kind of hard to um what, what we were saying. You know, we have this Magog reverend talking about how, he, you know, he wants to dedicate his, his life to all these these noble causes and stuff. And he has like, the, he's kind of like Nightcrawler from X-Men comics. You know, he mm. has like this, this like a kind of, a, it was a Catholic guilt thing in, in that case, but you know, kind of like that. Or he's like ashamed of, of who he is or probably a lot of people can probably like identify with that. You know, if, 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 if you've, if you've grown up uh, marginalized or feeling may ever made to feel ashamed or anything, but it's, yeah. as, as, as cool of a concept as that is, it's just like, you know, the makeup is a little distractingly bad. I hate to, I hate to say that, but even like the design, I don't, I don't even think it's like a great like design. I don't, I, I don't, I don't really get the idea they're trying to convey with that. I don't know. It, ju- it just seems like this, let's just paste a bunch of hair on people's faces and that's the design. It, it doesn't seem very well thought out. 
uh, it almost seems like how can we repel the viewer as much as possible with these character designs? It's interesting. It was almost like a meta thing. Like, let's make people not watch this show. I mean, um, do you want your grandma to be flipping channels and then then come across like that face? Do you, do you think she's going to stick around and watch that or is she going to, you know, keep on flipping? No. And, and there, there are plenty of things that make this show like watchable and fun for sure. But there are also plenty of things that make it really embarrassing to watch and you just don't want people around you when you're watching it it's like oh there's there are the dog people with the penis faces oh there's a magog who looks like he his face just came out of a microwave oh there's trans gemini a a pink elf cat lady with uh, a boob window uh with a long tail acting like a bubblehead who forgets to put on her space helmet when she's stepping into an airlock wow this is bad, but also fun. You know, I'll, I'll say this as far as like design wise and like, you know, thinking of, of what this stuff might look like. But the stuff we get in the very beginning when when they have the battle with the Nietzscheans, the, you know, kind of like the catalyst of the downfall mm-hmm. of the Commonwealth, I guess. When we see the ship in all of its glory, when it has like a full crew and uh, there's soldiers on the bridge, like announcing captain on the bridge and stuff like that. And and all like these big golden walls and, and, you know, much more color. And the captain, instead of having like this black leather uniform, he has like this like, I don't know, crimson red. But it it is like a bit more, you know, pulpy sci-fi kind of Flash Mm -hmm. Gordon-y type stuff. Yeah. But it almost reminds me more of like a like Dune or Foundation type of... This is humanity so far in the future and so far into space that doesn't even like look like, you know, recognizable like Earth society or Earth culture. It's like it's become like this new this this new type of people that like when I see like this, I don't know, weird stylized armor and like this. OK, the soldiers like standing with like the staff. But I don't, I don't really like know what it is. It's almost more like fantasy than sci fi. You know, it's almost like like, oh, like what is what is like this weird world? I don't recognize it's like that far advanced, that far removed from uh from modern times and then when you do like the time jump it it does become like much more relatable much more grounded so you you kind of get like a sense of like oh there's this big like regression from like the you know the apex of civilization and that, that that's kind of just a cool concept i don't i don't know if the production design actually gets all of that across but i can i can see the intent very clearly yeah i agree and i was initially put off by that first half of the the first episode because i was like okay they're they're going for something here but the they're reaching for something that that's not within their grasp right they're tr- it wasn't what i was expecting for andromeda yeah. so like this is what it looks like whoa whoa, whoa this is not what i was is it going to be like this the whole time so I, I was very confused yeah and it also seemed very status quo you know kind of generic ripping off any type of ship based you know federation star trek type show uh, so the fact that everything changes at the halfway point, I, I liked. Um, some of the effects are awful, like when they get near the black hole and they're, well, all that's going to be bad. It's going to look bad. But what is off, what is truly awful in this show and also great is the fight choreography. All the fight choreography, all the shots of Sorbo, quote unquote, kicking ass, they all look like mistakes. It's like when a when a photographer, a professional photographer takes like ton, like hundreds of photos of an event and then they go back to their computer and they weed out all all of the, you know, they edit and they weed out all the bad shots 
and then they keep the good shots and they put the bad shots in one folder and the good shots in another folder. But the, you know, maybe they accidentally send the bad shots to to the client. It feels like that's what happened here with the uh, the action scenes. Like they kept all the bad shots and they accidentally trash binned all the good stuff because it all looks so clunky and clumsy when there's hand to hand fist fighting. But that was sort of the funnest stuff to watch. That was sort of the, like I, I was I was really entertained with a lot. It's fun. It, 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 yeah. It's it's cheesy, but like the way that like. It'll play like that fanfare music. It'll like celebrate, you know, like Kevin Sorbo's like bad stunt work. Uh, but then like the music swells and you get like this victorious feeling and you're like, oh, this is like so stupid. But it's, it's, this is like, it's Power Rangers for like mm. people that are like out of elementary school, you know? <laughs> That's all it is. We're, we're, we're watching Power Rangers. This is a Power Rangers for grownups. Is Power Rangers for the, the middle aged nerd right here? Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. Um, are you inspired to watch more? I would with with someone else who wanted to uh to converse about it. I don't I don't have enough time that I I would I I I, I spend so much time watching Star Trek in my free time. I was like, man, I'd rather like watch Voyager for the forty seventh time than look at a <laughs> busted face Magog dude here. But yeah. um, I I would I would definitely be curious if people were like, oh, you have to see this crazy thing that happens in season two or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the show. I, I'm, I'm open to, uh, to learning more about it. It's one of those that I can just, I feel I can put on late at night when I've seen too much Star Trek. And it's like, okay, let's try something a little different and just kind of fall asleep to it. Um, I don't think I'll watch the entire series knowing that Robert Hewitt Wolf pieced out when Sorbo got a little too was trying to feed his ego a little too much. So I don't really want to see he, that. He, he drove away the showrunner, basically. Yeah. The, the, the head of the head of the head writer. Mm-hmm. That's never good. More, more than that. Like, he, he, he has credit for developing the show. Like the guy who is like, took Gene Roddenberry's pornographic notes and made it into <laughs> a producible television series. Yeah. And he drove this guy out. Yeah. Kevin Sorbo was always a bad guy. Wasn't he? It sounds like it. Yeah. Well, okay. I will say this isn't the worst B-level syndicated sci-fi action show I've ever seen or have seen lately because uh, I have a lot in my queue for this podcast series. But yeah, it's watchable. It's fun. It's fucking stupid. If you're a fan of the show, save your emails. I'm not going to read them. <laughs> Please don't yell at me. Thank you. Yell at Steven. You said they're already coming for you, these people, these Andromeda the Babylon people? Five people, but yeah, yeah, uh, I like all like thirty-one, and I was gonna say forty-seven, but I don't even think there's forty-seven Andromeda <laughs> fans. So we'll go. We'll represent section thirty-one. The thirty-one got to make it a Trek reference, but all, all thirty-one Andromeda fans, y'all, 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 go ahead, come after me too. There, there is one Andromeda podcast that I found um, on on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But they seem to have a pretty good perspective. Like they're not like this is the best show ever, man. They're like, yeah, this show's silly. Let's have let's have a good time. So I'm here for those guys. I forgot what it's called, but oh, and there's another one that's in German. Uh, I did listen to it. Oh, they'll, they'll love this in Germany. Yeah, this this is. It sounded very reverent. It sounded like they really liked it. So you know, have fun Germans with <laughs> Andromeda. <laughs> okay, any final thoughts on Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda? 
I guess my final thought would just be I'm I'm curious about like the behind the scenes. I want to I might I might do some more research. I might go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole. I wonder like how much of this is Gene and how much of it is Wolf and. Mm. I wonder if I can, if I like, you know, like the Nietzscheans, like that sounds like very like, I don't know, maybe like a bit like Spock and the Vulcans. Maybe that was, maybe that was like some, some old like Roddenberry stuff he had, you know, in his head since the sixties. So just kind of as a, as a Star Trek fan, as kind of like a Star Trek historian, I'm, I guess like, I kind of want to see more of those real life, uh, just kind of learn like those stories and those connections to the, <laughs> to that other franchise. I spent a lot of time yeah. thinking and talking about. I couldn't really find a lot of background info other than there's maybe not much that Roddenberry really did, but just create the spine for this, which is the main character, the basic plot, and the fact that it was going to have this huge time jump and a fish out of water concept. And then Majel just, you know, hired Wolf and and he ran with it for a while. Um, But yeah, some of these episodes that I've seen going forward are definitely like space action show of the week, but some of them do have some surprising depth that I think Wolf adds that you get from DS9, not on the level of DS9 in any way, but surprisingly deeper than you think the show would go. So, you know, there's something, right? Um, You can find it on Tubi. You can find it on Freebie. Maybe the best way to watch this is go to uh, Half Price Books and look for a VHS copy and find a VCR and stick it in a 12-inch uh, TV and and watch it that way. That might be the best way to watch this show. Um, but yeah, Andromeda. Steven, where can we find you online? Tell us all about Text Track and everything you're doing. Well, I'm easy to find. Uh, you can follow me on most social media platforms at TXTrek. And we stream a weekly live show every Friday night at 7 p.m. Central on YouTube. Text-Trek is the name of the channel. And that show is available to listen to on podcast platforms uh, every Monday morning. So we'll be covering all new episodes of Star Trek whenever new episodes release this year. And when there's no new Star Trek, we talk about old Star Trek. Uh, we just spent a lot of time in January of this year going over Star Trek Enterprise Season 1. So if you want to see more science fiction series stuff from around this time, around the time of Andromeda, uh, go uh, check out uh, Text Trek where we are talking about Star Trek Enterprise. What's a new upcoming Star Trek project that you're really looking forward to in 2024? Actually, I have a couple of interviews coming up on the horizon. So we're going to be talking to uh, Star Trek author David Mack. He has a a new book, one of the Star Trek Picard uh, tie-in novels. But we're going to be talking to him uh, hopefully March 1st if things work out. And then uh, we also hope to talk to uh, Doug Drexler, designer of the NX-01 Enterprise, the the main hero ship on star trek enterprise i like the design of that ship when it came out back in the day back in what 2000 2001 i was like this is a good spin on the enterprise i i buy that this would be the first enterprise yeah yeah it it looked it looked different but it was still you know recognizable like oh that's star trek you know Mm -hmm. yeah cool all right find the pod at intergalactic pod on insta and threads Find me at Mike Moody Garcia on Insta and Threads. Follow the pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, audio version on YouTube as well. Sub to all those platforms. Find everything about the pod at intergalacticpod.co. 
Thanks for listening.